Hello everyone, this is Maz. If you're hearing this message, it means you're not part of the Voices of War subscriber community and will only hear the first half of the episode. If that's enough, then I'm thrilled. However, if you're looking to dive deeper into the complexities of war, please consider subscribing to our private feed by using the link at the top of the show notes. By doing so, you'll gain access to all of our episodes, the ability to ask follow-up questions, and we'll become part of an exclusive community that makes this show possible. I hope you'll make the decision to join us today. Dehumanization is the attitude of conceiving of others as less than human creatures. But when you move into this kind of rhetoric, you are in a pre-genocidal condition. If we want to protect ourselves from A, being dehumanizers and, and B, being um, either complicit or actually getting our hands dirty in acts of, of, of terrible, unjust violence, we need to understand these processes. We need to understand what it is in the human mind, including the human mind of you and me, that makes us vulnerable to uh, this kind of propaganda. My guest today is Dr. David Livingston-Smith, a philosophy professor at the University of New England. David's particular area of interest and research is dehumanization and mass violence. He's the author of several award-winning books, which include Less Than Human, Why We Demean, Enslave and Exterminate Others, and On Inhumanity, Dehumanization and How to Resist It. I have previously read these two books and have interviewed David about them just over two years ago. I have shared the link to that episode in the show notes, and I highly recommend it for a deep dive on the process of dehumanization more generally. Today, however, David joins me to explore the notion of dehumanization as it applies to the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas. David, welcome back to the Voice of War. Thank you. It's an honor to be there. Great to see you, and I know that it's uh, an exceptionally busy time for you, so I really do appreciate uh, you uh, coming uh, back on the show. Uh, but just before we dive into, I guess, what's happening in the world at the moment, uh, for those who might not be familiar with, uh, with your work, how would you describe your academic focus uh, to date, uh, and what led you down this path in the first place? Okay, so, so first, let me, let me say that I have a third book on dehumanization now called Making Monsters, the Uncanny Power of Dehumanization, which is my most comprehensive uh, explanation of my position. So wow. how did I, what is dehumanization? How did I go down this road? I'm going to invert the two parts of the question. So part, part of why I went down this road was autobiographical. Mm. I grew up in the deep south of the United States in the 50s and 60s. Uh, where uh, the dehumanization of, of African-Americans was palpable. And I grew up in an extended family with my maternal grandparents who were Jewish refugees from Eastern Europe. Their mm. families fled the pogroms, fortunately, decades before National Socialism. Um, so I was marinated in experiences of dehumanization, both in the world around me, 
in the deep south, Florida. Mm. And in the stories my grandparents would tell about the horrors that mm. were inflicted on Jewish people in Eastern Europe. Uh, now that was sort of latent in my consciousness uh, until nine, uh, what was it, 2006. Mm -hmm. That year I was working on a book about war, war and human nature. Uh, it was called The Most Dangerous Animal. And when I was researching mm -hmm. the penultimate chapter of that book, I came across all of this wartime propaganda representing enemies as subhuman creatures, as, you know, as vermin or as bloodthirsty mm. predators or whatever. Mm. And I thought to myself, oh, this is really very interesting. I, I should investigate this further. And what I found was there was virtually no literature out of, mm. outside of social psychology. Mm. And the social psychological literature, I thought, was very, very limited, primarily for the following reason. To understand this process, you can't just look inside people's heads. You can't just concentrate on psychology. You have to look at the world in which people's mm. heads are situated. Mm. You have to look at the politics, the social forces and so on. So that's the trajectory that led to my first book on dehumanization, Less Than Human, published in uh, 2011. Mm. Uh, and I was just trying to figure it out because at that time, there were no books on dehumanization. It was like zero. Mm. Mm. And still- we laughed at uh, in, in our last chat. It was one way, one good way to uh, to get referenced. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my friend Amor, my yeah. <laughs> uh, a Moroccan colleague, said, "David, mm. you've got to write a book on this. Everyone mm. will mm. have to cite you." Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and still, I think probably I've written half of the books in the English yeah, language right. on this on this topic. So that's how I got to where I am, and it turned out to be uh, a really major task both to understand the history of the concept of dehumanization and the psychology of how dehumanization works and the political circumstances in which it occurs so since 2011 my my work has been developing i've corrected some errors that i've made in the past mm. presumably i will correct more errors as the work proceeds mm. So what is dehumanization? That was the other half of your question. Mm, mm -hmm. Well, it's not an easy question to answer because the word is used in many different ways to mean many different things. If you Google the word dehumanization, you will get millions of hits. When I mm, last checked, mm. it was around 8 million hits, probably mm, much mm. more now. Mm. But if you investigate what people are calling dehumanization, it's all over the map. People are using it as sort of a general term for degradation or cruelty or whatever. And even in the academic literature, there are perhaps 10 different conceptions of what dehumanization is. Now, it's not that 
you know, some are right and some are wrong. It's mm, just that mm. the word is uh, kind of a funky word that means various things. So if we're trying to do serious work on dehumanization, we need to specify what yeah. we mean. And what I mean is the following. Dehumanization is the attitude of conceiving of others as less than human creatures. Mm. Uh, it's an attitude, so it's in our head, but it's a psychological response, in my view, to political forces. It doesn't arise spontaneously in the human mind. Mm. Um, and maybe I'm, you can develop that a little more, because I think that's a sure. that will become more relevant as we as we continue the conversation. Sure. Yeah. So, if you actually look at at the um, paradigmatic cases of dehumanization. And this is really exemplified in genocide. And I, mm. I don't know of a single genocide in the last century or so that has not involved dehumanization. If you mm. actually look at these cases, what you see is that dehumanizing beliefs on the part of people who actually get their hands dirty, who do the killing, are prompted by political propaganda. Mm. So people in positions of power and authority convince others that these others are subhumans. Mm. So it's not that people somehow wake up in the morning and think the Armenians or the Jews or whomever are, are subhuman beings. They have to be they have to have these ideas inculcated in them. And there are certain mm. patterns of propaganda that are very effective in doing that. Mm. So it's, in, in, it, and I think we talked about this at length in our last episode, and I really do encourage people to to listen to that for a, a much more nuanced and deeper dive on, on, on these kind of topics. But it is enculturated, as you said, it's part of the environment that you uh, are brought up in, and therefore it needs that political piece, a political justification Mm. That will even in the first place motivate why we might other this uh, other social group uh, yeah. who is the object of our um, you know targeting in, in whatever capacity. Um, yes, yeah, so so there are always people who have a vested interest in getting us to harm others, mm. to oppress them, to exterminate them, and so on. That's just mm. how things work, unfortunately. Mm. And there's yeah. a feature of human. Uh, human culture that is very relevant here. So I think the way to begin this is with an illustration. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting at a, your, your listeners can't see this, but they can hear this sound. I'm sitting in front of a desk and that desk looks to me entirely, you know, without gaps. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if I were to consult a microphysicist, the microphysicist would say, oh, this is mostly empty space, man. Mm, mm, and mm. I would accept that, even though that's not what my eyes tell me. And I would accept that because I grant the microphysicist a certain kind of authority. Mm. Philosophy, philosophers call this epistemic deference. We defer to the experts. Or Now, what's an expert? Well, an expert mm. is someone who's placed in the role 
of experts. They may not have genuine expertise, mm, mm, but mm. they're placed in that role. So, you know, in in the uh, in the 30s and 40s, Joseph Goebbels was treated as an expert. Mm. Um, so, so we accept certain um, claims by experts, even if they contradict our own experience, because the expert is someone who's supposed to know. Mm. Now, this is very relevant to dehumanization. So, even though these others, the Jews, the Armenians, the Palestinians, whomever is, you know, the flavor of the week, mm. look human, act human, and in fact, as human beings, we cannot help but perceive them as humans. That's, that's just automatic. We're prepared to set that aside in the face of people in positions of authority who tell us, no, they may look human, but they're not really human. Mm. They're really something mm. else. They're, they're, they're counterfeit humans. On the inside, they're something alien and dangerous. Mm. And mm. these others, these counterfeit humans, need to be treated harshly or even exterminated. And mm -hmm. I mean, to go further and later on in the conversation, I could explain why this is. Typically mm -hmm. what occurs is they're seen as demonic, as embodiments of evil. And of course, if you're dealing with a demon, with a monster, with an embodiment of evil, then no treatment is too harsh. And yeah. this leads to yeah. terrible atrocities. Yeah. Well, it's a, there's a moral righteousness. There's a moral weight that comes with that. It's, so it's not only, it's not only the right thing to do, but it's a, there's a duty to go and yes, do it. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's obligatory. Mm. It's obligatory. And we, again, we see this in all of the cases of genocide, right? The mm. genocidaires don't think of themselves as doing something wrong. They think of mm. themselves as saving the world from mm. evil. Mm. And, mm. and it's mm. their, their, their obligation, their duty to do mm. these things. And the fact that these acts are hard to commit, you know, um, that's the fact that people commit them is seen as a measure of their moral fiber. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. That's, that's such... That's such an important aspect to and, and, and to now bring it and, and firstly I just want to highlight the fact that you, as you as you mentioned uh, right at the start I mean you have a personal history uh, that's connected to Israel or at least to to the Jewish people and to mm. um, uh, I guess the 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 atrocities uh, that they have experienced uh, throughout the ages mm -hmm. so I just want to highlight that uh, because I think it's important to acknowledge it given the fact that we're going to talk about uh, you know. Uh, what's going on right now in Israel uh, and sure. Hamas. Yeah. Uh, and, and I also invite you to add any context uh, uh, you wish. I, I certainly don't expect you to give you give your position, but if you want to, then feel free to do so. Uh, but your expertise on the subject uh, is truly what I find uh, fascinating. It was actually, um, I believe it was the, the, the defense minister, the Israeli defense minister who used the phrase human animals, the first. I think yes. he was the first one to use it in relation to Hamas. Totally understandable phrase. In given the circumstances, given the horrors experienced uh, by those Jews in those uh, settlements near Gaza, 
most people will say, yeah, of course, that's, that's a very fitting phrase. But as soon as I heard that phrase, that was the first moment I remembered our dis- previous discussion and, and thought popped into my mind to reach out to you again uh, for a follow-up conversation. Perhaps we can start with that phrase and what your thoughts are on it. Yeah, so I wrote an essay on, on that uh, the day it happened, I believe. Um, and, uh, well, this is actually a very good su- segue into getting deeper into dehumanization. So you notice he didn't say these are animals. Mm. He said they're human animals. Mm. So he didn't say they're wild animals. Mm. Um, and he didn't say they're human beings who've done terrible things. He said they're human animals. Mm. And that's very, very significant. Because nowadays, um, and again, I elaborate this most thoroughly in my most recent book, Making Monsters. Mm. And, I'll, and I'll provide the links to that and the essay uh, as well in the show notes. The, uh, I think what happens in the most destructive forms of dehumanization is that the other, the dehumanized other, is not simply seen as a predator or an unclean animal, but seen as a strange combination of animal and human. Mm. Mm. And what that does, actually I should say dangerous animal and human, is Mm. it transforms them into monsters. There's no such thing as a being that is totally human and totally animal in the sense that animal is being used there. Mm. That's an impossible combination. And it's a combination which is extremely disturbing. When we have two incompatible kinds of things and they're put together, this is the essence of horror. There, there are, Mm. there's an interesting literature on that, on this. It's the zombie, it's the Frankenstein, yes, right? It's exactly. the, it's the, so, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Zombie is a great example. Zombies mm, mm. are simultaneously alive and dead. Mm, mm. That's impossible. And it's a very disturbing notion. Similarly, werewolves are wolves and humans simultaneously. So, mm. in expressing himself as he did, what he was in fact doing was representing the other, and he was not clear whether he was referring to Hamas or Palestinians in Gaza generally, or Palestinians Mm. generally for that matter. Mm, mm, mm. Um, But it doesn't even apply to the the fighters in Hamas, right? Mm. Monsters don't exist, right? They are fictional. Human beings commit all these atrocities. There aren't any monsters. So that struck me as very, very ominous. And I, in the essay that I wrote on my Substack, I explained all of what I've explained to you just now, and says, and said this bodes ill for Israel's treatment of Gaza. Mm. Mm. Of, mm. Not too long afterwards, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu described the, the other again. He's not specific as bloodthirsty monsters. So this was really a continuation of of the same thing. Uh, yeah. So this is really. I, I wrote an essay on that as well, and I, you know, I said this is really, really dangerous stuff. Mm-hmm. I totally understand. I mean, 
Hamas has committed terrible atrocities, has taken these hostages. God knows what's happened to most of them. Um, Israel has to do something. But mm. when you move into this kind of rhetoric, you are in a pre-genocidal condition. Mm. Um, so, I mean, what more can be said? We we know what's going on now, what has happened. Yeah, yeah. And just to just for our audience to to set the context, uh, it's just it's gone just after ten p.m. on the twenty fifth of October, uh, Israel time. Um, uh, obviously, for you and I, it's, that's very different. You in the US and me in Australia, but it's uh, just to, just to give people an indication of where we are uh, in time and space. Much of this episode will be published uh, rather quickly. But what is the purpose of dehumanization? Because it must have a evolutionary reason, and I'd imagine perhaps in this instance, these these narratives, these phrases, maybe even planned. Uh, in a way to, you know, desensitize both the Israeli population, but perhaps more importantly, the 360,000 uh, reserves that have been called up, mm. who are all of a sudden, although they're trained, they're reserves, you know, today they were teachers, uh, tomorrow they're warriors, to, I guess, prepare them for what they might be asked to do. Uh, yeah. and, and I'm kind of half answering the question, but it's, so it's a loaded question, but it, you know, maybe you can delve into a bit more detail as to what is the actual evolutionary reason for dehumanizing. Well, yeah. So, um, first, I think it's worth n noting that Israelis, some Israelis and some Palestinians, I think we have to be very careful with our words, have both been engaging in dehumanizing propaganda. And, you know, I think the answer to the question what made these human beings, members of Hamas, capable of committing the atrocities that they did? I would say very likely a dehumanizing mm -hmm. a representation of Jewish people. From a very young age. From right? a very from, young from age. Child, so Palestinians yeah. are marinated in that. Yeah. Some some Palestinians are. Yeah. We, we, we need to be very, very careful here. Mm, and some Israelis are. And that's a, a terrible cocktail of for for violence. Um, so when we talk about the evolutionary uh, function, we have to be very careful there as well. Um, so evolution does come into my analysis, but sort of through the back door. I don't think dehumanization is something that evolution has directly produced in us. What it has produced are psychological dispositions that can be manipulated to get us to dehumanize. Right, so the us and them, that is the kind of... Well, there, it's actually more than that. Right. And it's kind of paradoxical. So here's a fa an uncontroversial fact about Homo sapiens, you and me. Homo sapiens are what biologists call ultra-social animals. Like, there is no other mammal that's as sociable as, as we mm. are. In place, inhibitions against violence, against community members. Because it's, it's just obvious, isn't it? You can't carry on a social way of life if you're ripping each other's throats out. Mm. Mm. So mm. these inhibitions 
and here's evolution comes into this. I've got to be part of the makeup of most of us. There are always exceptions when we're mm -hmm. speaking biologically. There are some people who have no inhibitions against violence, mm -hmm. but they are the exception rather than the rule. Okay. But we also have these great big brains and we can recognize that it is advantageous sometimes for us, whatever the us refers to, to harm, to exploit, to exterminate others, to take their resources, to enslave them or whatever. So on the one hand, there are these inhibitions against violence, particularly lethal violence. And on the other hand, a recognition that it, for practical purposes, violence, including lethal violence, uh, can be advantageous to a group. And being the clever primates that we are, over the millennia, we developed various ways of subverting them. And there are many. I mean, there are the use of, of intoxicants, mm. you know, drugs, alcohol. There's the use of religious ideologies, of mind-altering rituals. And there's the use of dehumanizing propaganda. If we can, if we can think of the other as subhuman, dangerously subhuman monsters, demonic in particular, then this um, undercuts the inhibitions that we might feel against doing acts of terrible violence to other members of our species. Mm -hmm. Now, this isn't usually you know, a smooth process because as ultra-social animals, mm. we automatically see humans, right? We just can't help it. You look into someone's eyes and you see human, it just clicks in. That, by the way, I think is why um, killing at a distance is easier than killing close up and personal. Mm. Why even in executions, practices like blindfolding or hooding yeah. are, are used. There's just something terribly difficult and terribly traumatic about looking at a human face and plunging a blade in their gut or, or mm. blasting them with bullets. Mm. Yeah. So, so dehumanization has that property of of uh, disabling inhibitions against violence. Now, the propagandists who get us to dehumanize, and propagandists is a little too limited, right? Because sometimes these views are distributed through a culture. I grew up in the Deep South, mm. in the 50s and 60s, the idea that black people were subhuman. I mean, it was just distributed. That's what your people's parents would tell them and their, the sheriff and the pastor and so on. But very often it is propagandists mm. uh, that, that do this. And sometimes they are sincere. Sometimes they believe it. Sometimes it's cynical. Sometimes it's instrumental. It's, it's a means to get people to do their bidding. So what one of the things that follows from this is that if we want to protect ourselves from A, being dehumanizers and, and B, being um, either complicit or actually getting our hands dirty in acts of, of, 
of terrible, unjust violence. We need to understand these processes. We need to understand what it is in the human mind, including the human mind of you and me, that makes us vulnerable to uh, this kind of propaganda. So we can push back, so we can protect ourselves. Yeah, because I think that's that's a really important piece. Because to 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 talk about this propaganda piece now, it seems this particular conflict right now is so globally divisive, right? Where you're globally being forced to, I guess, choose a side. Not being forced. Force is the wrong word, but you're inclined or or encouraged to, uh, yeah. and you feels like you're kind of being led down a kind of golden path. Yeah. How do you view that? Why is this particular area, region, conflict so divisive and so, I mean, all one needs to do is open X uh, or Twitter um, to see how divisive it is and how quickly it goes down this kind of sliding path to dehumanization. Mm. That's a big question and a hard question, and I fear I can't do it justice, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you my two cents. Um, part, part of this, but only part, and probably a smallish part, has to do with historical ignorance. Mm. This is a mm. very, very complex situation. Yeah. Um, and it's not clean, right? The creation of the state of Israel and the, and the two wars that followed, it, it's, it's, the, it's very easy to give a cartoonish uh, yeah. representation of, of Israelis' struggle for existence in the aftermath of the Holocaust and indeed centuries of genocide. Similarly, it's very easy to give a cartoonish representation of the terrible plight of Palestinians uh, who were ethnically cleansed, which is a euphemism for genocide, let's be straightforward, mm. from their homes, relegated particularly in Hamas to, I think the, uh, sorry, in Gaza, to uh, I, th I think what is appropriately called an open air prison, mm. um, this is, this is a complex and terrible history where it's not entirely straightforward looking historically uh, who's the good guys and the bad guys. In fact, we should never look at conflicts like, like that. Mm, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's easy to do. And there are people with agendas who like to stir us all up and, and, and get us in, in one position or another. Another very potent um, element here is, um, well, no, before I get on to that, look, fear is motivating. Mm. Fear, terror is, is a, um, uh, a predominant emotion on both sides of this. Politicians, particularly authoritarian politicians, uh, politicians, politicians that want to manipulate our behavior, capitalize on fear. Um, they know what buttons to push. Um, and they push them. And that has certainly gone on in Israel and, and Palestine. 
The other point I just wanted to get to, which I pre I preempted myself, was is that dehumanization comes very readily if racialization is there first. Now, what do I mean by racialization? Um, that would be a long story. It would be a story for another episode, perhaps. So let me cut to the chase. When we think of others as belonging to a different race, as Israelis, many Israelis and many Palestinians do to one another, mm. we think of them as, first of all, these others as fundamentally different from us. Not trivially, fundamentally, yeah. and that yeah. difference is a life sentence, that deep down they're different. We think of them as inheriting that difference from their parents, from the grandparents, and so on. And very crucially, we think we situate them as uh, beings on a hierarchy. We think mm. of them as inferior. Racialization is the doorway to dehumanization. As I like to put it, dehumanization is race on steroids. Mm. And, and we have this here. Um, so American listeners and probably Australian listeners for different mm. reasons might find this strange. Americans think of race as basically black people and white people. Mm. And I would suspect that Australians basically think of race in terms of indigenous Australians versus Euro Australians. Mm. Yeah. But these are just, you know, socially and historically contingent variations mm. on a broader theme. Mm. See, when we racialize people, we demote them in the category of the human. When we dehumanize them, we take it further. Well, they're not really human at all. There's something. There's some human more. animal, right? So that's a again exactly. just to use that as as a real human poignant animal. example. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's 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 so powerful. I mean, I, I think uh, I hope collectively we can start appreciating how powerful words are and how much they, as you rightly say, they motivate. So mm. a, a, a phrase like a human animal that is. As you said, you know, a, a, a kind of a, a, a demonic creature, something yeah. that needs to be, well, dare I say, exterminated. How yeah. much that incites an emotion, it invokes an emotion, you know. And as you said, fear from the demons, right? Yeah. That, they, you know, they, 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 there is, there's now a whole bunch of emotions rising up. And if a skillful orator can channel that energy Absolutely. into destruction yeah. so into anger turning into anger that then motivates destruction i mean that is i guess the ultimate goal one would say and you know if it's 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 that that is what will allow war to continue or war to start yeah uh, and, and 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 perhaps that as you, again as you rightly pointed out that's probably what we're seeing uh, uh Right. Yeah, it is, and and war of a of a particular sort because you and I know, of course, that inevitably there are atrocities in war. When you mm. let the demon out mm. of the bottle, it's yeah. hard to control. Yeah, but there's war, and there's war, right? Yeah, and if dehumanization is playing a significant role, all the rules the rules just don't apply. Yeah, right. It's it's anything goes if you're if you're fighting monsters. Anything goes. You, you, you. There's, there's no, you know. What are the words I want to use? There are no 
there's no there's no limits. Honor. There's no, there's yeah, no honor. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yeah, exactly. There is no honor. That's a, that's a, that's actually a very good uh, good way to put it. Again, from from your perspective, and I suspect you're looking at what's going on, uh, perhaps too much through the lens <laughs> that you're so familiar with. Uh, but uh, to what extent does the kind of general media portrayal of both sides contribute? To this dehumanization, how do you see? Did you how do you see that uh, play out? Well, you know, I'm not not sure there is such a thing as the general media. There are various media sources, and they and and some of them play explicitly to uh, certain groups of people who already mm. have a vested interest mm. in demonizing one side rather than the other. Um. That's dangerous, and it's profoundly objectionable. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm a humanist. I, I, I think taking these sorts of, of um, attitudes, not roundly condemning everyone who does terrible things and not roundly supporting those who are suffering unjustly is, is awful. I mean, it's... It's destructive. It, it it could spell the end to us. I mean, you and I both know how this conflict could could lead into something much larger. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, these are people who are interested in making their own profits and and uh, and feeding the flames of 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 bigotry and ignorance and of. Of course, they have to be allowed to do that, but mm. it's paradoxical. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, when the Nazis were rising to power, one one of the things that actually Goebbels said was, "Democracy has given us the means for its own destruction." Mm. Right? We have freedom of speech, and mm. we can, by using that, subvert democracy itself. I, th I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration to say that the propaganda, propagandistic media presentations are subversions of democracy. Because mm. democracy requires people to be informed, right? It's not just being able to vote, it's being able to understand. Mm. Um, How poignant that uh, Goebbels uh, said that. I mean, it's a, uh, it again reminds me of the you know, Hitler's quote, you know, what luck for leaders that men do not think, uh, which yeah. again, you know, sp <laughs> speaks to that very point. I mean, That's coming from, one. but coming from, you know, two subject matter experts uh, in the field, as uh, ludicrous as it is to say that. Um, yeah. What are some of the things that you would say we ought to be, we'll have our, we ought to have our eyes open to? I mean, what are some of those things that trigger alarm bells in your mind when you read, hear, see uh, in, you know, across the whole media space, whether it's uh, yeah. kind of a, a mainstream or social media or whatever? Oh, um, I think the weaponization of the Holocaust is a terrible thing. The Holocaust was a terrible thing, but its exploitation in this context, which is very, very different, is awful. What, what do you mean? Well, there, there's a lot of um, discourse, particularly, uh, we've seen it from Netanyahu, if I'm not mistaken, mm. comparing Hamas 
or maybe Palestinians generally, to Nazis. Mm. Now, we can condemn Hamas without making a ridiculous claim like that. Mm. Right? Mm. Yeah, because it's, it's a link, that, right? It's a cognitive link. It's a yeah. cognitive link, yes. And, 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 you know, he knows what he's doing there. Mm. Um, so, so that's the kind of thing one example or one kind of thing we have to be very you hear something like that i think you should back up right you should mm. be prepared to push back because you should know that you're being manipulated and mm. again let me be very very clear i would be happy with hamas not existing mm. Mm. and there's a sense in which i'm a zionist not mm. a nasty zionist mm. Mm. but israel exists Israelis have a right to live, and just generally speaking, nations are born in violence, so we, we can't really single out Israel as having some kind of unique history in that respect. Mm, mm. Um, but, <laughs> mm. uh, you know, uh, having said that and having condemned Hamas, the position of Palestinians who are trying to get on with their life and 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 like all human beings want basic securities and comforts and to be treated justly is a terrible thing. And I think, apart from those who benefit from creating conflict, from feeding the flames of violence, there are a lot of people who would just be really happy <laughs> to live their lives. To live yeah. their lives together. Yeah. Um, so, so alluding to focusing on the historical injustices. If you'd like to hear the rest of this episode and gain access to all of the episodes of The Voices of War, simply become a subscriber using the link in the show notes. As you know, I will not feature any ads on the show which is made possible solely through the support of our subscribers. If you find value in the content, you can become one now.